I remember mother when she was dying, all shrunk up and gray. I asked her if she was afraid. She just shook her head. I was afraid to touch the death I seen in her. I couldn't find nothing beautiful or uplifting about her going back to God. I heard people talk about immortality, but I ain't seen it. I wondered how it'd be when I died. What it'd be like to know that this breath now was the last one you was ever going to draw. I just hope that I can meet it the same way she did, with the same calm. Well, that's where it's hidden, the immortality I hadn't seen. Hello, and welcome to Hello. the Swift Shift. <laughs> I am Zachary Brown. I'm your co-host. Uh, I'm with Cafe Content. As always, I am joined by the formidable Sean Swift. How are you doing today, Sean? I'm all right. Doing doing pretty good on a day off from uh, work for once. Yeah. And with that haunting rendition of a quote from The Thin Red Line, we also have filmmaker Michael Helms on the podcast today. How are you doing today, Michael? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. This is a podcast? Yeah, this is a podcast. <laughs> I didn't just call you out of nowhere. Um, do not uh, 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 disturb our seven listeners, okay? They're oh, very sorry, loyal. Sorry. But you did that really well. That was a, the, a haunting rendition. Usually we yeah. have to mess up about three times before we get those quotes in. Oh, well, cool. Thanks. I was going to do it in Spanish, but, you know, it, I suck at Spanish. <laughs> so we have michael helms on the podcast today because he has just what do you think the right word is michael uh premiered your short film the white paper does that I, I sound like the right word pretty yeah i mean I, I guess there's not a really right word but premiere. i mean we had a little we had a public premiere a couple of weeks ago so um I, I guess that's right i finished it in october so we'll just say premiere how about that i love it i love yeah. that you premiered the short film, The White Paper, which is, I think it is safe to say that it is a war movie or a war short film or a snippet of film that has to do with war. And we thought it a good opportunity to kind of talk about war films, what goes into war films, what makes war films intriguing. And then Michael chose a movie that had some type of influence on his short film, and he chose Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line, and we will never forgive him for it. <laughs> <laughs> I know Sean won't. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm most interested in having you on today, Michael, is to talk to you about the process of making the white paper, how you approached it, if you were approached by a different group, and kind of the the process of doing it especially the way you did it kind of a jack of all trades doing everything in the film what's the what's the origin story of the white paper uh well it's the origin is there's a a revolutionary war battle that took place in lincolnton north carolina well present day lincolnton back then it was just lincoln county and this area was kind of called uh ramsar's mill and there was a battle that took place here in uh 1780 that was sort of uh, uh, important in the in keeping the British from maintaining a stronghold in the southern uh, colonies. So what I wanted to do is take an idea from that and make a short film from it. But it's really 
Um, we do a stage production here every year called Thunder Over Carolina, which uh, a, recollect a recollection of the surrounding events of the battle and a portion of the battle itself. So this film, The Origin, was the idea was to make sort of a promotional video um, to get the play out there, but it actually turned into a short film in the process. I was going to say, if, if it was about being a prom I didn't even get the idea that it was a promotional video. I saw it as a standalone film, and it really takes some type of artistic talent to take an idea like an, a promotional video and turn it into what you did with the white paper. Before we get too into the kind of process of it, I want you to tell people where they can find the film um, and where they can find your films in general. Well, I have a, a website. It's helms-productions.com. I have, I think, five of my short films are on the website and uh, kind of a bit of my other work. Uh, I've done some weddings and uh, working on a documentary right now. So uh, you can find a lot of my stuff on my website. And uh, my YouTube page is Helms Productions. That's perfect. So if you haven't seen the white paper yet, hit pause, come back to the podcast, and <laughs> go watch the white paper. Because as always on this podcast, we lay out a blanket spoiler warning. We're going to spoil everything from Homer to People Magazine to the back of the cereal box. We're spoiling everything on this podcast. There, there you is didn't no tell me to read People Magazine. Well, uh, and we need to stop recording. Go read People Magazine. Because there's a lot of famous people in the Thin Red Line, which we'll get to. Talk to me about the concept of the white paper as a signaling for the Revolutionary War. Was that factual? Did you use that as a plot conceit? Where did that come from? It is factual. And as Alfred Hitchcock would say, it's my MacGuffin, sort of, is that... Uh, the white paper was used by the rebel forces. Well, they weren't actually, they were rebels, but they weren't part of a standing army. These were civilians. So the battle took place between two large groups of civilians, one loyalist, one rebel. So the rebels, what they did is they would use a slip of white paper and they would tuck it in their hat to, to uh, differentiate themselves from the enemy. So you could tell the two sides apart. The loyalist side, they wore twigs in their hats. So you could tell who was who. The, I guess the ironic part of the, the white paper is that during the battle itself, the paper would fall out of the hat. Sure. And, and, yeah, and the same on the happen. other side. Right. And then, so there would, there would be a lot of confusion. Uh, so you had loyalists killing loyalists and rebels killing rebels without knowing who was who sometimes. And, it was, it was pretty brutal. You know, you could imagine, especially with on the loyalist side, when you're putting twigs in your hat. Man, I could just see a rando twig going in a hat, especially when you're fighting <laughs> war in a forest, you know? I just yeah, assume yeah, yeah. that it happens yeah, a there lot. Were, yeah, there were a lot of woods here around that time, too, in a swamp area. So, like, oh, that guy's Co wearing a twig. I better twigs. not shoot him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I really enjoyed the short film. It had me wondering what the actual history of it was in Lincoln County. And it also made me wonder how those things happen in war when you're, you don't know, everybody looks the same, man. And, you know, and we'll get into this with the thin red line is, is 
you're you're both human beings and you're on the separate sides and a lot of the times you weren't the person that started the war you're the person following the orders you really got that sense of desperation in a, a short film which, yeah do you have anything to add sean uh, i know you have a little bit more you've you've known about the film i think that you've you saw a draft of the film yeah yeah i saw like an early cut uh, i gave some pretty like brief notes like there wasn't a lot because when i saw it i thought the film was was really good and i had worked with i've known michael since high school so i've sort of seen his his style and creativity sort of grow and and prosper like over the years we went to film school together and whatnot and i uh, helped produce a short film with him a few years ago that i thought was really good as well and uh, so I didn't have a part in this one, but I did get to see like an early cut of it. I gave some pretty brief notes, but uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it was great. I thought it was totally his like sense of style. So this kind of inspired me to to use this podcast to talk about war movies, if you will. I wanted to start with the concept of a war movie. What characteristics do war movies have? Let me ask you this. Is it a requirement? for a war movie to have depictions of war in it. I think you need to you need to at least allude to it. Like if you've seen Lincoln, you know yeah. personally like if, if I watch Lincoln I, I think of it as a war movie. Even though you barely see anything battle related. So I, I think for me it's just something that takes place within that time frame that has repercussions of the war itself. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I mean I think you know, I think a lot of people, when they think of war movies, they, they think of Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan or The Thin Red Line where you're, or, or uh, Dunkirk where you're dropped right in the middle of a battle. You know, I, I think that if it's around that time period and you're with these characters who are dealing with it, whether they're on the front lines or not, I, I think that it could count as a war movie for sure. You got, you, did you let loose the dogs of war at your house? I there, did, son? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> saving private roxy back here she's <laughs> did she okay, watch the white right. paper huh she did yeah she she was a fan so she did not okay, like, good. she can chime she, in yeah there was not a, uh, you don't want to hear that giving, criticism yeah, yeah that's her giving her <laughs> in the background um all right so in that same vein let me ask you this is forrest gump a war movie yes i would say yes oh man I mean, it's, you know, there are large parts of that movie that have nothing to do with war at all. But because there's a a, section of it that does include the Vietnam War. Now, is this a, are we talking about his internal war? Oh, (laughs) no, no, Michael Malik. We're not talking about (laughs) internal war. No, Um, I think I I don't. I, 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 man, that's so hard because I said. I agree and disagree with Sean. Like when you think of Forrest Gump, like a lot of people, a lot of the things we remember very vividly are the war scenes. This is yeah. the time he spent with with uh, Bubba. Right. And uh, those Lieutenant, are like a, that's like, Dan. That's true, but there are also scenes that people remember that have nothing to do with war: the chocolates, the running, the Jenny scenes, the even Lieutenant Dan. There are scenes where, like the for, the New Year's scene. There's mm-hmm. so much of that movie that has nothing to do with war. And so I guess that brings me to if there is a war in your movie, does that make it a war movie? I mean, I think it could have elements of it. I mean, again, like Forrest Gump is a fictional biography 
kind of thing. I mean, it's about this guy's life, but you know, like Michael said, a chunk of that movie is him signing up, going into the army. You know, he goes to battle, does all this stuff. Then he becomes a ping pong player for the army. Yeah. Uh, You know, I mean, there's a good chunk of, uh, I'd say a third of that movie is him in the military, even though the battle scenes, you know, there's maybe three or four tops. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, that's a really good question, Zach, because I think Forrest Gump is kind of an exception, too, because it doesn't take place in a, in a period of, of six months or a year. It's it's a span of a lifetime. So Right, sure. Um, and there there aren't many films like that that you can point to and really ask that question. Of course, with the exception of Forrest Gump and maybe a couple others, you know. Yeah, um, about the span of the life is what you're saying, Michael. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let me ask you this, and I'm just uh, this is what went through my brain while I was thinking about this. A few good men, right? It it's mm-hmm. about the military. It the inciting incident happens, you know, in a conf- conflicted area. There is right. no actual war, but they are dealing with war themes. Is a few good men a war movie? See now, why you got to make it so hard? (laughs) (laughs) This is what I thought was interesting about it. I don't think so. I think it's a courtroom drama. Yeah, I I I was gonna say, yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's a it's a military court drama. Is what it is. I uh, wholeheartedly wholeheartedly agree. Now, I think you're gonna disagree with me on this one, but I want to hear I want to hear your feedback. Maybe my second favorite war movie is Two Towers the second Lord of the Rings hmm. movie has huh. nothing to do with a realistic war. Most of that movie is inside of a war. However, it's a fantasy movie. It's about hobbits. Um, you know, you get some war tactics in there as well. Would you consider uh, Lord of the Rings, two towers, a war movie? No, I would not. I have, I have never considered that, but I think, I guess if we're kind of sticking to what we said before, that it takes place during a war time, then, then I guess we would have to say it is, um, e- even though it's fictional and it's orcs and elves and man. Right. See, to, to me, Lord of the Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, all that stuff, it's got battle scenes. But to me, those those are fantasy films. Like that's to me, that is like action adventure fantasy. I, it's hard for me to call that a war movie. Yeah. I guess now we can't out, put Sean. it in the genre war. I, I guess we can't call it a genre film as far as war goes. Right. Yeah. All right. So let me ask you this: Are you creating a pillar of a war movie, Sean? When you say it's, when you say that the Two Towers does not qualify because it's a fictional or fantasy movie, would you say that a war movie has to deal with a war that has happened historically i would say yes i mean i think i mean i think that it needs to at least be semi-grounded in reality like uh i don't know if you've seen courage under fire but like that is about soldiers it's um meg ryan is a soldier who gets killed and it's denzel washington investigating her murder and that you know it's got that one's again more of like a kind of a military thriller i don't know that i would classify it as a war movie but I would put that as more of a war movie solely for the fact that it is just 
a little bit more grounded in reality. Whereas like Lord of the Rings, it's, you know, it's, it's total fantasy. I think I should point out here that Sean isn't the biggest fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I think they're well made. (laughs) (laughs) I think they're very well made films. Now that we've kind of established that it's hard really, I think, to describe what a war film is. Even when you think of something like The Great Escape. That, to me, is more of a, a prison escape movie than it is a war movie. Of course, it, it's in a POW camp, so you can't escape the war. Um, it's right. just interesting to think about the shell that we put over war films and then what you can do inside that shell, which is what makes it interesting. Let's right. kind of start talking about a little bit about our favorite war films. I'd love to start with you, Michael. What What's one of your favorite war films? I'll have to say to start my favorite movie of all time actually and it's not a i guess nobody would point at and say it's a special film but it's it's very traditional in its narrative and didn't break any barriers but it's uh glory from uh 1989 with denzel washington and freeman and matthew broderick so that i would say that's my favorite war film even though it might not be the best ever but that that's one that really has stuck with me since i was about you know eight years old when we were talking about doing this podcast, you waffled between The Thin Red Line and Glory as the movies that we were going to delve deep into. Really yeah. wish you had gone the other way with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love it. Glory. See, I, I really do. Yeah, I yeah, understand yeah. what you're saying, that there may not be special things going on with the filmmaking, but there are some amazing characters in that. And to yeah, see absolutely. Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington in the same movie together, which I don't think ever happened again, it was really special. Yeah, That was uh, yeah, back I, I, when I, Matthew Broderick really, like, he picked out some great roles back then, because he's fantastic. Oh, he he's really rocking the stash. Yeah, I think, rocking the stash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he has, a, he has like a sort of a naivety to him that was like amazing in that film. I think um, the reason I didn't pick Glory is because the Thin Red Line really uh, has pieces of it that that are more influential on the white paper than Glory, you know. So yeah, I, sure. I tried to keep it. I tried to keep it consistent, but you know, I'm happy to talk about Glory. I mean, my favorite movie ever. Sean, what um, Lord of the Rings movie did you pick for <laughs> one of your favorite war movies? The, the <laughs> Hobbit Two: The Desolation of Smog. Uh, Smog. It's Smog. 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 It's Smog. <laughs> so for me i i sort of knew my three instantly uh for me i think the best war movie ever made is apocalypse now i i think that it is ding, ding, abs- ding, 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 ding. yeah i don't think that it gets any better i think uh you know it's vietnam war it's got a wide cast of characters they're all interesting characters you've got battle scenes you've got inner struggles among these characters i mean it, and it's just perfect i mean i actually i actually went and uh they just re-released final cut so it's longer than the theatrical cut but shorter than the redo and it was actually i really enjoyed it i went and saw it on the big screen and was just blown yeah. away yeah it i want to see it so bad yeah, I, I like as like, soon I, as I, I got out, I ordered like the six disc Blu-ray. Oh, geez. So, what else are they yeah. going to talk about? I don't know. I, I Because I've saw it so recently, I haven't dug into it yet. But it's got like it's got every version of that movie, plus like Hearts of Darkness, like the making of it. But yeah, I don't know. I think that that is one of Francis Ford Coppola's masterpieces. That guy in the seventies just kept cranking them out. Uh, but I, yeah. I, as far as war movies go, I, I think that movie is just, 
I don't think it gets any better. Yeah, I think it's the greatest of all time. The yeah. greatest, yeah. How do you square that the movie has been recut, has been redone multiple times with the idea that it's the best war movie of all time and you know one of the considered one of the best movies ever created that there was never the right answer to (laughs) what is the best version of this movie i mean that one i think everyone would agree that the redux is not the best version uh what do they shoot like eight hours or something worth of footage i mean coppola initially wanted that movie to be like five or six hours long and they cut it down to three three and a half hours and so I don't know. I mean, I, I'd be, I, I would watch that movie for five hours if I could. Yeah. I love both versions. Uh, I didn't see yeah. the new one, but um, I, I mean, I love the Redux and that that's one thing. Uh, Zach makes a good point because that's really hard for me too, is when I see 85 cuts of a film, right. like, which one should I say is the best, you know? And then Martin Scorsese, I love how he, he says, there's no such thing as a director's cut. I ain't doing it. And he says, whatever is comes out is what's final. And I, I'm on Scorsese's side with that. And, uh, but with Apocalypse Now, like, for some reason, I can, you know, I can let go of the fact that there are three cuts and, and just say Apocalypse Now, period. Yeah. And uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I yeah. do know what you're saying. Robert Duvall, it'd be hard to say that it was maybe Robert Duvall's best performance. But you forget in all the memes and uh, the the screenshots of him standing with his you know arms to his side, smelling uh, napalm. Napalm, yeah. You like forget that it. he has my favorite part of the movie is that he has a weird fascination with surfing. He's yeah, so mm-hmm. obsessed with surfing, and he wants them to surf while the bombs are going off. Uh, and there's not even the, any wave the, hardly. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, there's not any. Yeah, they do more <laughs> of that in the final cut too. I mean, there's like more stuff of them on the beach getting shot at bombs going off and he's just like you're gonna get out there and surf <laughs> like you're not getting <laughs> off this beach until you surf and you know and it's like you said it's such a weird fascinating character and you know and i think when when you see like movies about vietnam and you think about the soldiers that came back from that war you know they a lot of them were just a little bit weird a little bit off and you know and, in that and they're case, all surfers and they, they were all they were all really good surfers. <laughs> okay, and this movie has been brought up a few times already by you guys as kind of the staple this is the great war movie or war film, but I think you're discounting it a little bit. Saving Private Ryan is yeah. one of my favorite war films of all time. Yeah. The performance that you get from Hanks, the performance even you know, you don't see Damon until what, thirty minutes into the movie. The, oh, it's longer than that. It's yeah. it's a good. Oh, yeah, it's, like, it's about halfway through. Almost, yeah, yeah, almost two hours probably because it's yeah. a two hour and forty five minute movie, something like that. Yeah, he's only in the last act basically. I mean, they find him and then it's like, all right, we're we're gonna get you out of here, kind of thing. But yeah, I'd say yeah. he's he's not in it for the first two thirds. Well, for me, it's when he's sitting at that chair and him and Tom Hanks are talking and and Matt Damon's telling him that story about Alice Jardine. You know, like you. Yeah. Like for me, when I look at that performance, like it is so genuine, him telling that story. And I've never, like when you see actors tell stories in movies or on stage or something like that, they're all, you can always tell they're like, let me pause here. Let me pause here. Let me do this. Let me do that. But with Matt Damon, that like, that speech and that performance there, like I found there wasn't a single flaw in that. And I was like, man, that's brilliant. Yeah. He's, I mean, and again, that's, 
I, I would agree. I think that's certainly one of the, the great war movies. And, you know, the, the whole cast in that is great. I mean, you've got that scene. You've got the uh, stuff where Tom Hanks is, like, telling him about when he was a teacher back home. That I, th- I had the same reaction. Like, he, even though it's Tom Hanks, like, you don't see Tom Hanks. Like, you actually see this teacher who is over here, like, do, serving his country. And yeah, absolutely. Like Tom Sizemore, like one of the, I mean, he's a great character actor, but you know, one of the like sleaziest dudes <laughs> on the planet. And he's yeah. a really lovable uh, staff sergeant in that. I mean, you really like, you know, when he gets shot and he's just like, oh, you know, I got the wind knocked out of me. I mean, it's, I got the wind knocked out of me when it happened because you just, you want to see all <laughs> oh, these <yeah>. guys <laughs> get out of there and you're like, I think, oh, man. I think we're just going to, I think this podcast just needs to be about saving Private Ryan because I think, <laughs> I think, oh. I think we all changed our minds. Don't put it past us. Oh, we are getting to the thin red line, my friend. You want a thin red line, you're getting the thin red line. (laughs) Please, please. Oh, God. (laughs) Those three films that we've just touched on illustrate the width, the variety of war films that we have to choose from. You know, I think that they're... Do you guys have any kind of honorable mentions that you want to get to before we get to the thin red line? Um, I love Dr. Strangelove. I, th- I think that the idea of paranoia, the idea of misinformation in that movie is great. But again, you're not seeing a lot of actual war in that. And right. I don't know if it counts for people as a war film. See, well, that's a me. That's a... Uh, well, there is a little action when he, uh, when dude rides the bomb out of the plane. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, that works. Yeah. Flint Pickens. Flint Pickens, that's his name. Yeah. <laughs> Chapter one, The Nature in War. So for our deep dive for this episode, Michael got to choose the film, and he chose The Thin Red Line. We've been having some fun with The Thin Red Line and Terrence Malick in general. Um, <laughs> but there, there's a, definitely a reason why people look to this movie as, what would you, what would you call it? A, a authentic representation of how someone reacts internally to a war that's going on around them. Is that fair to say, Michael? I think it's pretty fair. I think um, I think Malik um, he get he waxes a little poetic at times. That you know, it's like every one of his characters are deep philosophical thinkers, but you know, not everybody is. So it, it's it's not exactly on the I guess on the spectrum of realism. Sure, and you can you can definitely tell um, this is uh, based on a book. And you can definitely tell that the the voice in the book and the voiceover in the film are putting words to feelings that I don't think these characters would be able to articulate. Um, right. You know, Most I, of them, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Generalize it like that. But sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's right. I agree. And I think um, I think that's why what drew Malik to the the novel in the first place was the internal monologues. And I think, um, I mean, since that is his, you know, his niche. The movie starts with, you see a character living with a, a village. And obviously this person is not from the same ethnic background of these people, but he seems to be really enjoying himself. And 
that the movie started out that way really gave me pause. I didn't know it was hard to orient myself when and where this was. Very interesting. This movie has the visual hallmarks of a Vietnam movie, but is actually set in World War II. Did you get that idea? And it, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. The um, the helmets are almost the same. A lot of the uniforms are the same, especially the, the army, being that it takes place in Guadalcanal, which is an island populated by the indigenous peoples, which are almost like, I don't know what to call it, um, uh, Vietnam era looking, like with the grass and the, the way the trees are and stuff like that. So I mean, if you go into it blind, like if you never heard of Terrence Malick and you're just like, you go to the video store and you're like, I want to rent a war movie. And you just grab the thin red line blindly. You know, it could definitely throw you off because of just, I mean, it, it opens with an alligator shimming into a swamp. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. like, you know, and when you think of world war two, you know, you think of Germany, you think of D day. Well, that that's one thing I wanted to, to mention too, is that, um, Sean said that you think World War II, you think the European theater or North Africa or Italy, and then you're like, um, a lot of people forget about the island hopping campaigns that the Marines had. So it's nice to see a movie like this that really pays attention to um, the Pacific, the Pacific arena. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and what the Marines went through was absolutely brutal. And, um, yeah. I mean, no, taking nothing away from the army, but the Marines, man, they were, they had it rough. And, and the Japanese, they had no mercy, man. They didn't follow any rules that the Germans followed, you know? Yeah. So it was, it was pretty brutal. And, you know, the army was over there too, but they did a lot of cleanup for the Marines. What, what you that, notice, I think immediately, it's hard to explain Terrence Malick to someone who has never seen a Terrence Malick movie. These are yeah. these are like visual, emotional poetry that he's trying to create. And so in the voiceovers, you get kind of these letters back and forth to a lover, possibly. And you don't really know who these people are addressing, where they are. You'll see the face of somebody and you think you're hearing their voice um, speaking. But really what they're doing is... I guess internalizing, you know, I don't believe that the narrator is always the person that you think you're in the head of. On top of that, you have that, that internal battle. And then on the outside, what he concentrates on the red line, you see a lot of destruction of nature. You see a lot of trees getting blown up, people interacting with the leaves on plants. And there's this one battle where they're, laid down on the ground because they don't want to get shot and there's a snake attacking them in the middle of this shootout. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, yeah, um, that's, that's, yeah that's funny because um, the snake's coming at them the bullet's whizzing over their head and there's a snake oh let's back up away from the snake you know they're they could get shot but they're dodging the snake so it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating yeah yeah and you get you know like I when I see that I think like if I were in that predicament I would do the same thing it's one of those things that you don't think about, like you see it on the screen or whatever, and you're like, okay, like they're, but like if I'm in that, because I hate snakes and, you know, because of where they're at, it's a cobra. So it's a venomous, like deadly snake. So it's like, do I take my chance and, you know, try to not get bit by the snake and take a bullet or do I stay down 
and just like hope this snake like you know buzzes off i'd be getting my ass up and taking taking my chances with the bullets too i just have to hope that the other side's a fast <laughs> shot you know yeah. <laughs> but i thought it was such a contrast in this movie that you see that there's a baby bird at one point desperately trying to get uh through the mud um there's this one point when they're in a in a village they've captured or killed everybody in this village or military encampment and there are buzzards birds flying over their bodies and the soldier is trying to explain to the the person the captured japanese soldier hey those birds are going to eat you when you die like mm -hmm. that's where that's where you're going at the end of this so yeah. when you get caught up in all the malik part of this movie where it's very emotional and this is how war makes me feel he's contrasted that with this actual physical manifestation and i think that's really important to when the film works really well and then the water i wanted to talk to you guys about the water did you you get that they're always asking for water they're always about to like thirst to death yeah yeah and and the thing with the water, too, there is a power that holds the water in his hand. Like you have the lieutenant colonel who's saying, I'll get you water soon. I'll get you water soon. I'll get it soon. You don't need water. Keep going, you know. And yeah, then, and if uh, they pass out, you, they'll pass out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then you think about the water that's on the island, you know, when they're towards the end of the film where they're walking through the water or floating down the water. And you think that has a – there's somebody holding that water, too, like in, in a god way. And the last thing to say about that is when he's describing his relationship to his loved one, he describes it as as we're like water because we f flow through each other and you can't tell where, where I start and you begin. Um, there was a big water theme going on there. I'm not always sure that Malik is getting to the point that he's trying to get to, but I appreciate what he's doing to try to get there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think... Um... I think sometimes he can be a little overindulgent and um and he's he's trying to say something obviously but sometimes it gets to be a little much but I think also with the whole thing about the man and his wife we're one we're connected it, it, it it's kind of a a human visual representation of how um nature is connected with war kind of too it, because his wife leads him and there's kind of that war too. So if that makes sense. And yeah. I think Malik is really, I don't think he's trying to separate everything saying, this is the ugliness of war. This is the beauty of nature. I think he's trying to say they're one almost that there's war in everything. Cause there's a part where Nick, um, what's his name? Nick Nolte, uh, he says, look at those vines, how they're climbing up the trees and choking the tree or whatever. He said, nature is violent, you know, Sure. And, uh, so yeah. I think he's really connecting the two. He's not just saying nature is different. He's saying nature is the same. Chapter two. It's like Ocean's Eleven on opposite day. <laughs> 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 Sean Penn, Adrian Brody, George Clooney, John Cusack. Woody Harrelson, Jared Leto, Tim Blake Nelson, John C. <laughs> Riley, Thomas Jane, Nick Stahl, possibly uh, John Travolta there, I'm sorry, for like a second. And then possibly on the cutting room floor of this movie, Bill Pullman and Mickey Rourke. The It's crazy. When I first saw the movie rendition of The Outsiders, 
You guys seen this? The Outsiders, the Matt Dillon. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you're like, whoa, everybody in that film became famous. Yeah. Um, when I started watching The Thin Red Line, I was like, this this is exactly what happened. And I, <laughs> you know, I missed some names in that. And there are people, Woody Harrelson, I thought, did an amazing job in this movie. And oh, yeah. I think this could be the best Nick Nolte performance. I mean, I know 48 hours is great, but <laughs> <laughs> I was not joking about that. I love 48 hours. Um, <laughs> uh, no, hey, 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 you're great. You're great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But there's just a plethora of actors in this movie and to see them play against each other. I, all I wished is that we got more, more interaction with each other, more yeah. dialogue, so that instead of telling me word for word how this person feels, you can show it to me with how they interact with their soldiers. Oh yeah, I think that's one of the um, one of Malik's. I mean, I, I really don't want to call it a shortcoming because his style is to be very free flowing, and you can you can buy it um, because of the way it's cut together and everything. But also, yeah, you do want like a cohesive sort of narrative from Terrence Malick with these, all these great actors, you know, and, and I, I agree with you. I do think it's Nick Nolte's best performance and it's not even in the moments that he's yelling. It's in the moments that he's quiet. Yeah. And um, especially when he's sitting there after they've uh, taken over the Japanese camp and he's just sitting there looking out, you see so much going through his head without any, he doesn't do a voiceover. I'm like, Terrence Malick, that is the best performance of the film. And there's no voiceover to it. You yeah. know how he feels and he doesn't have to tell you, you know? And and the thing about, you mentioned uh, how Nick Nolte's making bad decision after bad decision. And I kind of, if you're okay with it, I'd like to sort of disagree with you a little bit. Okay. Um, um, just because, okay, so you have the Elliot Cotillardiez uh, <laughs> character who, I mean, he cares, <laughs> he cares so greatly about his men. And that is, that is understandable. Absolutely. But you're also in a war, and war is is death. War is pain. You, it is your job to send these men to die for the greater, for the greater goal. And you need you need men like him, of course, that have that have the sympathy and and that can do those things and and care so much about his men. But then you have to have the Nick Nolte characters who drive everything forward. He's almost like the General Patton that says, no, you're not going to sleep. You're going to get the job done. He has to separate himself and detach himself emotionally from the soldiers to be able to get them what needs to be, to get them to do what needs to be done. I, I understand where you're coming from, and I want to get into that a little bit more in the next chapter because I've got some really interesting questions for the both of you because there's nothing like on a podcast when someone who was never – uh, been a part of the military or served anything tells two people who have been a part of the military what's realistic and what's not realistic. <laughs> you know, that's nothing better than that. You know, when when we get into this debate, I'm gonna growl and yell like Nick Nolte. <laughs> <laughs> um, but suffice it to say, although there were a lot of well-known actors in this movie, a lot of well-known actors who actually wanted to be in this movie as well, I thought that. Seeing John Cusack in a in a war movie was like seeing the record store guy 
in a movie where he should not be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like or like seeing John Cusack like as an assassin. What was that movie? <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah. Like, uh gross <laughs> gross point blank. Yeah. Uh, he was yeah. pretty good in that. But yeah, yeah I was gonna was, say that's that's like, like, Yeah, ever. that's a fun movie, but that's also but like, like it's like high fidelity, but with him as an assassin instead of a record store owner, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. I think that maybe it was a little star overload for, especially yeah, the type yeah. of insular movie that uh, Terrence Malick makes. Oh, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's fascinating to me that uh, he cut that movie to where initially Adrian Brody was supposed to be the star of the movie, and mm-hmm. by the final end of it, you know, Adrian Brody's in that movie for like three minutes and yeah. and Jim Cazaville is, is actually the star of the show. And I thought that was fascinating. Like, you know, obviously uh, like we were talking about when, when Malik is filming something, you know, there's all sorts of like set stories where they're like, he just sets up a camera even before they start shooting. And he just like films everything that stuff gets cut into or, or, around the movie however as a filmmaker myself like i i couldn't imagine having a, a story with like this being my lead person cut in such a way that they're no longer you know that they're barely in the film and that someone else entirely i mean that's to me that is a, a fascinating way of, yeah. of filmmaking you know and i oh totally chapter three the orders we follow in the orders we don't. I think the first thing to talk about here is the way the thin red line matches up so well, I think, with the white paper that you made, Michael. I can see the flashbacks or the, I don't know, it's not really flashbacks in the white paper, and it doesn't seem to be really flashbacks in the thin red line. They're, um, what would you call them? They were, they're scenes from a different part of the earth. They're, yeah, they're almost the like time. recollections. Or, or um, and If you're writing them in a screenplay, you're going to write it as like almost an insert, you know? Sure. Um, but so, but the way that you're in the middle of an action, lean down in a ditch, trying not to be seen, and you then you see him, I guess, have an emotional reaction to maybe wanting to be home. Um, his pregnant significant other, probably wife, you know, that you don't need the whole story to know what it's like to experience war. I think totally you see it in both The Thin Red Line and your film, The White Paper. Is that what you were oh, yeah. you were looking for when you suggested this movie? Oh, definitely. And I think, um, well, first I have to kind of preface with um, when I was making the film and writing it, I didn't have the thin red red line in mind. I didn't even have Terrence Malick in mind. But I can I can only credit him in a way that um, that he has been an influence on me. So it was more a, a lot of my decisions like that. I guess we're on the more subconscious level. So. It wasn't until afterward that I was like, oh, okay. And then a friend of mine who I showed the film to uh, pointed out to me, he was like, man, this is very Terrence Malick. Like, and I think I showed Sean the message that was sent to me. Didn't I, Sean? 
Yeah, yeah. About, and I yeah, chuckled yeah, yeah, to myself yeah, yeah. because I was like, of course yeah. it is. I find myself being allergic to movies that have a, that type of poetic quality. When people talk about, like, uh, I don't, I take Dunkirk, for example. Dunkirk is a movie where nothing is explained about how anybody feels about anything, but you get it immediately. You understand that they're just trying to survive. And I feel it on such a different level with Dunkirk than I do with The Thin Red Line, simply because it's not being told to me in the most poetic way. However, I feel like if I had seen this movie at like 12 or something, I would have been like, this is so beautiful. I need yeah. I need someone to explain it to me because I can't feel it. And I think maybe later on in life, it has, you need that less and less, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like with, with Dunkirk, his intent was literally to drop you as an audience member like right into the middle of these battles. And so you don't get to know these characters or anything like that all that well. And I, I feel for me, like I think the thin red line has a lot of those moments too, but then at the end of the day, it's a Terrence Malick film. And so you, you are going to have the, the visual poetry and, and symbolism and whatnot there uh, as well. So Malick is one of those filmmakers that, other people who know more than me about filmmaking tell me, hey, I've seen <laughs> Badlands, and Badlands, like you said, is a kind of a different animal. But yeah. go watch Terrence Malick. Go see how he can manipulate uh, images on the screen. And then I'll go watch, and I'm like, man, I was <laughs> two hours and 50 minutes, and it could have been 17. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think you're, I mean, that's, I think you're discounting yourself a little bit, though, because you, I mean, you're intelligent, so and and you can. I see there's no proof of that. There's zero proof of that. <laughs> well, I saw I saw it on the internet one time. So, <laughs> okay. Um, but I think I mean you're able to discern different things in film. So if if you, a filmmaker can't tell you Zach that you know oh your your opinion is invalid because you've never made a film, you know it doesn't take a it doesn't take a filmmaker to be able to to appreciate something in a film or to. Or anything like that. So, chapter four. Every podcast must end. Does our ruin benefit the earth? Does it help the grass to grow, the sun to shine? Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on to the Swift Shift, talking about war movies, talking about how we interact with. Terrence Malick and especially Michael thank you for coming on and talking about your film The White Paper it is on helms-productions.com I got that right right yes you did hey, hey thanks for uh for having me and I had a lot of fun it was pretty cool I, I hope that you'd maybe want to come back in the future and talk about more films and stuff that you like what I think that you have that Sean and I maybe is as lacking in our discussion is a just a calm demeanor that we're not yelling yeah. back with each other like Sean and I do. Like our last episode, you and I are like the two guys in the lighthouse, like two <laughs> crotchety <laughs> seamen going back and forth at each other. And we need we need a, a hey. calmer presence to uh, yeah. to step in. You need and, you need <laughs> you need a whisperer. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> someone like, to come in gonna, and whisper. You know, but this is the part of the podcast where we <laughs> kind of talk about what we're interested in seeing, maybe what we have plans to see coming up in the near future. Does any of that spark any ideas to you, Michael? What are you interested in seeing or maybe what you, have you seen in the past couple weeks that uh, you've really enjoyed? Well, I did see the other night I saw Ford versus Ferrari. And, oh um, man, I'm that was happy you did. So I good. haven't seen it yet. Yeah, you enjoyed it. Yeah, man, it was. It's one of those where you're like, I know this is a really good movie, but I'm gonna let it. I'm gonna let it sit for a couple of days and see what I think. And then, like, here it is a couple of days later, and it's still with me. I'm like, man, that's like top notch filmmaking. Like James Mangold is like one of the most underrated directors alive. Oh, he it, totally it, it, is. It's a great movie. Yeah, nice. Awesome. You, you have out. Ford and Ferrari on the on the docket as well, Sean. Do you have anything else that you're interested in? I know oh, you and I have been talking about the Irishman for about six months, so that's I, coming. I, I saw the Irishman. Oh, you bastard! I, I went and saw it. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to kill you. Oh man! <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not. That's gonna, all that there I'm is to gonna... say. <laughs> We're probably going to do an episode about it. It is the only movie this year that is in contention to knock Once Upon a Time in Hollywood out as my favorite movie. It's incredible. So I just want to say I also saw my f- I believe it knocked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood off the mantle as the Tread. best movie that I saw this year. Tread lightly here. Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> okay, I'm not seeing that one yet. Oh, I haven't seen that one either. Okay, have you seen the trailer for it, Michael? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Great. I there are so many times in this movie, guys. I laughed out loud. I cried uh like i had a physical reaction to this movie there's so so much to laugh about so much to cry about so much to celebrate in this movie i can't wait for you to see it to see what your reaction is um it may be you know we were talking about warm films before it's it's got such a light heart but it also can sting really deep it's it was such a good movie and i was so happy to have been there in the theater, I watched it with my mom, and there's a mother character in it. Um, it's just, you know, it was just I, I really had an emotional reaction to this movie. Strong Ew. men also cry. <laughs> you, you tell him, you tell him, Sean. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for joining us for the Swift Shift. Um, please follow us on at the 85 podcast for updates on what future podcasts are going to be and then when we podca- publish those podcasts we are on itunes we are on google play we are on every podcast medium that you can think about we're on spotify please follow sean at uh you can find me on uh, facebook it's just sean swift there's probably more than one. I'm the one with like the, uh, and then you can find me on Twitter at Sean Swift five. And then on Instagram, it's just Sean W Swift. So- and M- Michael, let us know where people can find your work. Maybe where people can follow news about what's going on in your productions. Instagram with uh, it's Helms productions. I have a Helms productions, Facebook page that you can follow if you would like. Hey, Sean. Yo. Why should I be afraid to die? I belong to you. If I go first, I'll wait for you on there. On the other side of the dark waters. Be with me now.